to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Glenn has been in a series over the last several weeks called Improbable Icons, and, um, and I thought that it was really, really an interesting way not only to uh, address the scriptures and look at some different people in the Bible, but I love the, the way in which he's, he's addressing it. I love that, that our, our, our culture kind of sets up a lot of different people as heroes, as people for us to look to and in some ways to maybe even strive to become like them. In Whether it's a, a football player or some sort of celebrity, uh, they are plastered onto billboards, magazines, TVs, movies, communicating subtly, these are our heroes. These are the people that we honor, and therefore by honoring them, somehow we would love it if we could become like them. And in some ways, we... We would see them as somehow perfect. And if they're not, they get airbrushed to be perfect. And somehow they have achieved. And if we could only achieve. Now, if we take any time to think about that, we recognize that that's not wise. Those should not be our heroes. But I don't know about you, but if I look in the Scriptures and look for some heroes, there's some pretty messed up heroes in the Bible. Some pretty, some pretty people. Some people that maybe if you're if you grew up like I did and going to Sunday school, I'm not sure. I don't blame my Sunday school teachers for this, but when I got older, I started to look at the people like Noah and David and and some of these guys that were were pitched as heroes and started to realize and see that Noah got drunk and and was you know sloshed in his tent, buck naked, and uh, and and David is out you know. Um, looking on at, at naked women off of his roof and all this kind of thing. And, and I thought, well, these guys aren't really all that much better. And so, so is it that we just say, okay, there are no heroes. We should never look to anybody else. And yet these guys and women are in the Scriptures. And maybe it's on purpose. I actually do think it is true that it is on purpose that these people are in the Bible identified as whether it's heroes of the faith or certainly people that we can look to, not to say, oh, I'm going to be like them, but maybe it is so that we can identify with them. So that when we look at and feel like we are ordinary, we, as Glenn was talking about, can identify with the life of Nehemiah. Or when we have blown it big time, we can identify with the life of David. Or when we might have some doubt in our minds that we would recognize that we are in good company with Peter. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, doubted. So when we doubt, it's not like, oh man, I shouldn't even be a Christian. How can I even have some doubt? And in some ways, I wonder if we haven't been pitched that kind of a bill of goods that says, well, if you doubt or if you're this, and somehow you're not quite good enough, but maybe God is saying in the Scriptures, I've got a whole string of people in this massive rescue plan story that I've got going on here that I want you to not only identify with, but but in seeing that they're part of my story, 
It will also help you to recognize that you can be part of my story too. Is that when we blow it, when we have doubts, when we don't think that our life is big enough or that we're just too ordinary, that just like Nehemiah and just like David and just like Peter, we also have a place in the story of God. And so tonight, I want to take some time to recognize that in our suffering, in our pain, in our difficulty, we are in good company with Job. Now, I am going to try and take the next 30 minutes or so and break down the book of Job. So, <laughs> um, so this is obviously going to be a pretty broad stroke message on the book of Job. Um, there's been hours and hours, books and books, uh, and lots and lots of teaching done on the book of Job and the subject of suffering. So I am not going to get up here and, and say that I'm going to try and kind of solve all of those issues and answer all of those questions. But maybe there's a, there's a different angle that we can take in looking at the book of Job and the life of Job by saying that we are in good company with some pretty, a pretty amazing guy when we experience suffering. And so what we're going to do is try to look at Job, not kind of verse by verse, but section by section. And so I've broken it up into five different sections. The first section really starting off in the very beginning of the book. And, and, it's, in the, and, and it's really what I would call the situation. And the situation, for any of you that are unfamiliar with the book of Job, Job is a guy who loves God. And in the first few verses of the book of Job, we have, see this interaction between uh, God and Satan. And Satan wants to, wants to tempt Job and find out if he really has got the stuff, if he really loves God. And he ends up going on and is able to, and God says, yes, go ahead and tempt my servant. Go ahead and test my servant. And he loses his, in, in the first chapter alone, there's this series of events happen, that happens where where these different servants start coming to Job and they start telling him a big storm came through or something happened and, and you're, all of your cattle were destroyed. And as soon as that guy's done telling him about that, another guy comes up and he starts to tell him about something else that was destroyed. And the last one being that he comes up and he says, all of your children, your whole family, everyone except for your wife, your kids were all in this house. They were all together. They were eating together and the house was destroyed, and all of your family was destroyed with it. That's a bad day. I've always found actually a little bit of solace in the fact that if I ever feel like I'm having a bad day or everything seems to be going wrong, is to read the first couple chapters of the book of Job, and not to say that it makes it all right, but it does make me feel like, okay, maybe my life isn't quite as bad as Job's. And, and so here's the situation. Job's lot loses everything. In the second chapter, he not only loses his possessions, but now he loses his health. Everything for Job is going wrong. Now here's, I think, the huge issue, and that is, if you look at the first verse of the first chapter, in the land of Uz, where lived a man whose name was Job, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So the issue in the book of Job is not just suffering in general. But I think the issue that really gets brought up is undeserved or what seems like undeserved suffering. I mean, this is a guy who loved God. The, the Bible states it. He's, if anything, maybe the, 
the man on earth who's honoring, the God, God, honoring God the most, who has completely devoted his heart and his life to God. So much so, even in the fifth verse of the first chapter, it talks about how Job sacrifices for his kids possible sins. I mean, the guy is pretty thorough. He's not only trying to make sure that he's right with God, he's trying to make sure that his kids are right with God. So we have a holy guy here. We have a guy who loves God. It's one thing if somebody is out drinking and driving and they get in an accident, run into a tree or something like that. It's not that there isn't any compassion potentially for somebody if they get hurt in a situation like that, but there's an element within us where we think or don't have maybe an overwhelming amount of questions about why did this happen because we understood why it happened. It was maybe brought on. It was, you hate to say this, but in some ways it was maybe deserved. Or somebody who um, takes drugs and, and has some sort of uh, reaction to taking illegal drugs. Not to say that you would wish that upon somebody, but you understand why they did it. And so really the question here, though, is why do bad things happen to good people? Why does somebody who honors God, loves God, does what seems to be right in the eyes of God experience suffering and experience difficulty. I bet if we were to go around this room, we would be able to identify stories in your own life, in your own family, or somebody close to you where you could talk about what would seem to be undeserved difficulty and suffering. Where maybe in the storms of life and everything seems to potentially be cruising along nicely and yet blindsided by a disease or by some sort of sickness or a loss or a death, somebody's betrayal. My wife and I, many of some of you know this, but my wife and I, three and a half years ago, we had three boys. We got pregnant again with our fourth child. And, and there was part of me that was really excited about the possibility of having a girl. And we found out at five months that we were going to have a girl. I thought that our, our family was going to be three boys with a little baby girl And so these three older brothers were going to protect their little princess sister. And at eight months, my wife and I got tragic news that there was something wrong with our baby. And two weeks later, my wife delivered a stillborn baby. That was three and a half years ago. When all of that happened, I thought to myself, why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? God, I'm a pastor. God, I love you. God, I've served you. Why are these types of things happening to me? Really, in some ways, we kind of expect that somehow, because we love God, we, we might have, and I wonder if in some streams of the body of Christ that there hasn't been a myth that's been put out there that says that as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, somebody who gives Jesus their heart and says yes to His ways, that we somehow receive this immunity card to suffering. And I, what, a, what I would consider a horrible disservice that we have done not only to the body of Christ, but also to the suffering world around us. If we look at the life of Job, Job actually suffered because of his great faith. And if we were to actually think about it, we might actually suffer more because we follow God. I wonder how much of this I shouldn't suffer mentality really has to do with our American culture. 
Think about somebody in China or somebody in Sudan or somebody around the world that if they give their life to Jesus, what they're saying yes to is most likely and most probably suffering. And have we maybe then bought into this idea that our lives are about self-preservation and Jesus now becomes the one that helps us get there? And so, and so I wonder then if this book doesn't address that attitude that we might hold pretty, pretty strongly here in America. The attitude that says, I shouldn't have to suffer, especially if I do the right thing. If I pay my taxes, if I'm nice to my neighbors, if I mow my yard, if I go to work, if I put some bread on the table, feed my family, I go to church every week, if I don't do anything horrible, then, then everything should be fine. And yet, that doesn't seem to be the case here for Job. And so, that's the situation. But I want to then move on to section number two, which is Job's initial response. It says that right after he finds out all about all these horrible things, in verse 20 of chapter 1, he says, At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship. Now, the next section is questions, and the majority of the book is questions. And we'll get to talking about those, what those questions were about and what, that, what was happening in that portion. But I wonder if we can't maybe take a lesson from the life of Job. And that is to, that, that we don't not question, but before we question, we worship. I wonder if in his worship he wasn't saying, God, I know that this is an opportunity for me to not trust you. But I'm going to start in a place of worship because I want to trust you. Because I want to be that guy. I'm convinced, and I say this from my own experience, not only from losing a daughter, um, but also from other tragic experiences, I am convinced that we cannot work our way through everything. In other words, through understanding and kind of our understanding of how it might work and how we might fix it. But I am convinced that we can worship through everything. I'm convinced that though we might not be able to work through everything, we can worship through everything. And so I find Job's initial response really powerful. And I wonder if it's realistic to think that we can worship God not after we figured it all out, but as our initial reaction to loss and pain in our lives. Now, I don't say that to say that we then should just be fine because we're worshiping and we don't have any questions, because then the questions come. Section 3 is questions. Job chapter 3 through Job chapter 37. The book is 42 chapters long. 3 through 37 is questions. Why, 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 why? I mean, over and over and around and around. And oftentimes, it's the same questions, just phrased a little differently. It's the same question, just tweaked, just coming around from the backside. Just, oh, well, I'll come down from the top and I'll land on it from this way. Maybe then I can get an answer. And so, so here's Job, and he's got three friends. And these three friends that are hanging out with him Actually, I think start off as really good friends. Because it says in the, in the first couple chapters that 
Job's friends just sat with him. Sat with him for like seven days. Didn't say a word. That might have been the best seven days for Job in this whole book. When his friends were quiet. (laughs) I can tell you some stories of people during my wife and I's time of loss, being in the hospital, delivering a stillborn baby, people trying to say things that were maybe more harmful than helpful. I wonder if we can't take lessons from, from Job's friend, friends initially by just staying quiet and sitting with people. I was one time with a group of pastors that were praying for a woman who had dealt with chronic pain. Chronic pain, like years and years, maybe even most of her life. And I wondered as these group of pastors were surrounding this woman and we were praying, and I just somehow kind of stuck, took a step back in my mind and listened and watched, and I, I felt like there was everybody around her praying about her situation and praying about her issues instead of entering her pain and entering the suffering that she had experienced. We surround it, and we're all around it, but we don't want to enter it. We'll just pray about it. So what if, as people of God, what if, as the body of Christ, sometimes being silent and sitting with someone, saying nothing but just being there, is the most beneficial thing that we could do? Now, I know that that's sometimes hard for us to grasp, because we feel like, we've got to tell them truth. What if you being there is truth? Just like Jesus coming into our suffering and into our pain. Some of the most profound experiences and some of the most beneficial people throughout my wife and I's experience were those who just came alongside, didn't try and offer any answers, didn't try and offer the solutions, the fix-its, just were with us just with us. And on Job chapter 3 through Job chapter 37 was lots and lots of questions. Some of those questions were directed towards Job. But one of the things that I think is most interesting in here is that Job is regularly addressing God in his questions. Job addresses God. Now, we might look at this, and I don't know how you maybe have heard somebody teach the book of Job before, but sometimes we might hear that, oh, Job was just kind of standing up to God, and man, he, you shouldn't do that. But I don't think God is afraid of our questions. I think God is bigger than our questions. Sometimes we've been told, don't question God. God's bigger. That is very true, but I'm convinced Part of the beauty of this process and the beauty of this book is that Job asked lots of questions, but the beauty is is that he always addressed it towards God. The problem becomes if we start asking questions and leaving God out of the process. So what if in all of our questions, what if in the the middle of the, the moment where everything falls apart, the day or the moment or the month or the year where everything just gets worse after worse after worse, and it's not going the way that you thought, it's not going the way that, that you expected, or maybe it's not going the way that it should go. Parents shouldn't be putting their kids in the ground. That is something that no one should have to do. It's not the way it's meant to be. Marriages are not supposed to break apart. 
Spouses aren't supposed to die unexpectedly in plane crashes or car crashes or because of a heart attack at 45 years old. Those things aren't supposed to happen in the sense of what God originally designed. And so there's a lot of questions that come with that. But what if in those response, not only do we go first to to God to worship, He involves Him in His worship from the beginning, but then He even involves Him in His questions. If we go to the Psalms, we see David. Two-thirds of the Psalms are laments. What's he doing? God, why is this happening? Where have you gone? He's addressing his laments, his questions to God. By addressing and lamenting, what we're doing is engaging God in conversation with what's going on in our own lives. Walter Brueggemann, he's a theologian, uh, mystic writer, and he says if we do not lament, then what we end up doing is eliminating God from the conversation, and he uses the word absolutizing our situation. In other words, without God in the process, what we see as reality is our reality. Instead of saying, God, why have you done this? Why isn't this happening? Why haven't you intervened? Why didn't you stop this from happening? Why did this happen in the first place? Is somehow then what we just see and the reality of our world in and of itself isn't just reality. We have involved the supernatural. We have involved the one who is bigger than what we see. And so I would encourage you, every one of us, no matter what is going on in our lives, if, there is, if you have anger in your heart, if you have like big, huge questions, if you're mad about something, about, ask it, lament, pray it to God. Involve God in your process. And Job does that throughout his questioning, throughout his, his wondering, throughout the asking of ultimately the, the big question, the ultimate big questions being asked here in this book is why me? Why me? Why me? And certainly one of the ways in, that they're trying to answer that question is by, by f- trying to find out the cause. Did you sin? Job, certainly you had some hidden sin. Certainly, Job, you blew it somewhere, and you're just not telling us. That's what his friends are asking him. Certainly, you've got something tucked down in your heart because you brought this on yourself, trying to find the cause, the cause which would answer the question, why me? Section number four is God's answer, Job chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41. But the amazing thing is, is that Job, or God doesn't answer Job's question of why me. And to add to that point about God not really answering that question, maybe for any of us, is that the Pharisees thought that they had the idea of people's ailments and, and uh, difficulties in life nailed down to their sins. That's why in the particular, there's one story in the New Testament in the Gospels where the guy is blind and he comes to the temple and they thought that the parents, it was because of the parents' sin. But Jesus blows that whole theory apart. But in blowing that theory apart, Jesus also doesn't answer that question. He doesn't say, oh no, it's not because of your sin or it's not because of you did this or it's not because of what your parents did, but he never answers the question. So here's this huge question, why me? God doesn't answer it to Job when he's been badgered with the question. 
lamented with the question for how many? 34 chapters? 35 chapters? Jesus doesn't give the answer when he blows the Pharisees' theory apart. And the only real response that God gives is, um, Job, let me just tell you how big I am, and let me just tell you how small you are. Let me tell you how much I'm in control of these. And he talks about the universe. He talks about these macro, sweeping, huge bits of creation that he not only started, but also is in charge of. And then talks about some very micro, mini, tiny things. I love how Frederick Buchner says it. He says, God doesn't explain, he explodes. He asks Job who he thinks he is anyways. He says, to try to explain the kinds of things Job wants explained would be like trying to explain Einstein to a little neck clam. So here we are, and I think we are just like Job. Why, God? Why, God? Why, God? And I say that because I have asked the same questions. But when we maybe recognize that that question is sitting out there, it's important for us to recognize that God is not like us. I was, um, many of you, I don't know if you've read the book Love Wins, but um, by Rob Bell, there's a lot of, been a lot of controversy about it and all this kind of stuff. But there's a portion of the book, there's a lot of the book that I agree with. There's a few different pieces of the book that I don't agree with. But there's a portion of it where, where uh, Bell is talking about, well, if God does it this way, I'm not sure that I would be able to serve a God like that. And, and it just kind of irked me just a, enough because I think what he's ultimately saying is, this is how I would do it. And so, since God's not going to do it the way I would do it, I'm not sure that I could serve a God like that. But I think, well, God isn't like you, and you're not like God. Thank God you're not God, and thank God I'm not God. Because there's a lot of things that God has done that I'm not sure that I would do it that way, but I can see that God was doing something really profound. I'm not sure that if I was God, I would take a, my son and send him down to earth, and then have him tortured and beaten and nailed to a cross. I'm not sure that I would have done that that way. Probably not, actually. And so God's answer isn't cliche. God's answer is really him saying, I want you to know how mysterious I am, and I want you to enter the mystery. See, because the responses oftentimes that we would get from somebody are often cliche. Oh, don't worry about it. He's in a better place. She's in a better place. I can tell you that there is no comfort in that. Any of you have lost loved ones, somebody says that to you, you kind of know it's maybe true. You know it's true here, but it doesn't offer you any comfort. But maybe there's some comfort in the mystery of God. Maybe in the same way that we are asking, and I mentioned friends, entering the pain with us. Maybe there's, there's a desire for us to enter our own pain and look for God. Instead of running from it and just trying to keep it at a distance. Because we live in a society that makes self-preservation one of the highest values. And section 5 is Job's final response. Chapter 42, the last chapter of the book. 
Job never gets his question answered. He did get a response from God. God did respond to him, which I am convinced that just in the same way that Job kept asking and kept asking and kept asking is almost an indicator for us. It's similar to David in the Psalms. He seems to keep lamenting and keep crying out and keep crying out. And we see persistent people honored in the New Testament, parables of Jesus honoring persistence. Keep lamenting, keep lamenting, keep crying out, keep asking, keep wondering, keep, keep putting it out there to God. God responds. He doesn't always respond in the ways that we would expect Him or want Him to respond, but He responds. But even after His response and not getting His own question answered, I wonder... if it was in the fact that it was God who responded that helped him not get bitter. I wonder if it's when we stop involving God in the process. I wonder if it's if we stop asking and involving God in the conversation. I wonder if it's then that we don't get an answer from God that we then get bitter. And oftentimes what we end up doing is asking ourselves and looking inside ourselves for the answer. But what if we keep asking and keep asking and keep asking? And maybe out of the blue, maybe as you read the Scriptures, maybe in ways that you don't expect, God responds. But it is in the fact that God responds that we don't get bitter. And so what if we change our question? And maybe this, I think it's okay to have this first question. I know that I certainly had it, and I even maybe still sometimes do. But I think in some ways the goal is that our question would change from why me to what is going to be my response. If we say that the the cause is beyond the reach of humanity, if if we embrace that in some way and we say, okay, instead of asking why me, that I'm not somehow more special than the other guy, I'm not somehow immune to this suffering and this pain, And so really then the question becomes, how am I going to respond? Will I trust God in my suffering and the fear it provokes? Or will I turn away from God in bitterness and anger? What if we were to have a different perspective on pain and suffering? There was a survey done not too long ago by a church wanting to know how it was or what happened or what kind of experiences they went through that provided the most growth. And so they were asking a lot of questions, and, and, and really the question for the church was, had a lot to do with what are we as a church doing that has helped people grow the most? And they put out all these surveys and got all the answers back and started compiling all the answers. And they found, to somewhat to their lament, that the number one, by far, the number one way in which people grew was through a traumatic experience through difficulty, pain, and suffering. Now, as a church, I don't know what you do with that. You know, come on over to our suffering small group. Grow in God. You know, I don't know what you do with that, but I think it says something really profound. Didn't say the preacher's teaching on Sunday morning or Sunday night. Hate it for me and Glenn. Didn't say when I went to small group every week. Now, those things, of course, are important, and they help to contribute to the ability for the moments of suffering. All suffering doesn't necessarily lead to growth. 
You ever experience, I mean, you've seen a lot of people, you probably know a lot of people, that they suffer and they turn nothing but bitter and they do not grow. But suffering can produce growth. And one of the ways that I think suffering produces growth is if we are surrounded by the right people, if we do have the truth of God in our hearts going into it, if we know that we are going to, and have made a decision in our hearts that we're going to worship God from the beginning, that we know that throughout our process we're always going to address our questions and all of our laments to God. And our a response after hearing from God or throughout the process is again going to be worship, which is Job's final response starts with worship, addresses it to God, and ends with worship, all of them involving God. God never left the process of difficulty, pain, and suffering for Job. What if we don't keep God out of the process? So if suffering is the number one way that we grow, does that mean that we need to go out and find ways to suffer? You know, drive cars into trees? (laughs) Intentionally break our legs? (laughs) Go hurt people on purpose. Aha, I'm helping you grow. I don't think so, but I do think that when pain and suffering comes, maybe it should change our perspective. I'm convinced that pain and suffering is a gift. It just happens to come in a really, 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 really ugly package. When I look back on the experience that my wife and I had three and a half years ago, the amount of dependence and intimacy and leaning into the Lord, the sense of powerlessness, which makes me realize I need God so bad. My wife and I coming to a place where we say, I need God, I need Jesus in this. I cannot do this. I don't know how to go through this. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what to do here. I don't know how to grieve this. I don't know, I don't know if we're going to be able to make it. This, is, this hurts my heart so bad. And yet through that, drove us to the Lord. And because of that, I can look back on that situation three and a half years ago and say, yeah, would I love for my little girl to be alive? Absolutely. But you know what? Other than for her, I wouldn't trade that situation for the world. If I had the choice ahead of time now, knowing what I know, to say, would you go through this or not? You have the choice to eliminate this from your life or not. I would say, I will keep it. And the reason is not because I love the pain and the suffering and the difficulty, but I love what it has produced in my wife and I. So what if we then pray about and look at and have a perspective on pain and suffering different than just, let's just keep it away. Let's just, and I'm not saying welcome it, but what I am saying is when it comes, what do we do with it? How will I respond? How will I navigate it? What if we were to recognize and in the middle of suffering, in the middle of difficulty and pain, Take note of what it's revealing in our hearts. I think suffering and pain reveals what it is that we care most about. Do we care most about self-preservation, security, and comfort? Or do we care about God? Do we care about learning and growing and submitting ourselves to the Lord? My wife, this was probably a month or two after loss and the funeral and all those things. My wife, Josie, was struggling, understandably, really having a hard time. So she decided that she was going to take a day to fast and pray. And about lunchtime, so she had skipped breakfast, she was during lunch, and she just felt like the Lord said to her, Josie, I'm patient with you here. 
And what that meant for her was, you're not going to be able to fast this away. She was kind of trying to fast and pray for relief. I wonder if oftentimes in the middle of suffering and difficulty that we're not just saying, I just need relief from this, God. When God is saying, I am patient with you here because I'm doing something in you, through you. I've got greater plans for you. I'm pretty sure if we look through the Scriptures, God's really not bothered by our discomfort and our pain. I mean, look at His Son, Jesus, if He's got a greater purpose in mind. I don't think God is out for our pain and discomfort, but I think He is out for something greater, recognizing that sometimes through pain and discomfort, those greater things come. And so what if our prayers in the middle of difficulty and pain weren't about the pain being removed, but we were able to pray that the pain would be redeemed. That the pain wouldn't be removed, but it would be redeemed. Really what we're asking is, God, would you do something with this pain? Don't just remove it. Do something. Help me become more like you. May this be a refining process. Out of the pain and the difficulty and the, and the woundedness of my life, may it become a source of healing for others, which really is the way that God works. What if God was asking us to pray not for, for prevention? Now, I don't mean pray for our families and pray for... I'm not saying we should pray for bad things to happen. But what if when those things come, because they are coming, Jesus says they're coming. In this life, you will have trouble. Wonderful promise of Jesus. I've got a, I have not, I have not seen that plaque at, at the Family Christian Bookstore. I'm not quite sure why, but yeah, you will have trouble. Jesus. But what if when it comes, we don't just pray for prevention, we pray for participation, that we would enter it and look for God in it. Look around. We're so interested in running away from it that we maybe miss the opportunity to enter it, to see God in it. And so Job, this guy who involves God in the whole process, I think for all of us, not just an icon of somebody who suffers a lot, but he's an icon of trust who says God can be trusted no matter what life looks like. Maybe it is on purpose that the story of Job looks like it is maybe the most worst suffering that anybody can endure, losing everything, every family member, every possession, even your health, that maybe then we wouldn't be able to say, well, mine is worse than Job's. So that Job can say to us, he can be trusted. I don't know why. I don't understand the cause. But he can be trusted. And so maybe this guy who seems to lose everything and certainly doesn't somehow have the American life that it's just the good life where nothing kind of goes wrong and everything cruises along and retirement is good. He's got the, the worst life. And yet he trusts God. Maybe instead of us just taking the good days from God, we also take the bad ones. Instead of just 
saying, oh, there's God. Oh, there's God when things go well is that in the bad things, we are also, also looking for God. Now, God didn't answer Job by mapping out exactly what he was doing. Maybe because Job couldn't understand and his brain would explode. Maybe we don't get all those answers because our brains are too puny and God has a bigger thing going on than we totally understand. But you know what? I do think that God gave an answer. He may not have given an intellectual answer at the moment to Job, but his answer came in the form of Jesus. His answer came in the form of Jesus saying, I see your broken world. I see how things are going the way that they're not supposed to go. I know that this is not how I designed this world. I know that this is not how I created things to be, for people to interact, for death to happen, and all of that. And so therefore, my answer to you is my son. My answer to you comes in the form of Abraham in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, me making a covenant with him and saying, this is my family and I'm going to put a rescue plan in place. And through this family, Jesus Christ is going to come. And Jesus Christ is going to do something about this pain and this suffering. So the answer comes not in this theory, in this book. It comes in the form of a person. And his name is Jesus, and he died on the cross that he might take on the sin of our hearts and the brokenness and the evil of the world and showing us in his resurrected body that all things will be made right. And we have not yet seen that in its fullness. But in the end, when we are crying out and praying, your kingdom come, your will be done, what we're praying for is for things to be made right now in anticipation for things being ultimately made right when Jesus comes back. And so the things that we have had broken and, and the things that we've lost and all the things that have gone wrong, ultimately what we can be praying is, Jesus, come, come back. Jesus, come back. Jesus, we're longing for your return because it is in your return that is the answer. Your answer fully came on the cross and your answer fully comes in its manifestation when you come back. That is where I found comfort. That is where we find hope. That is where we find ultimate, the ultimate answer. It doesn't always make us feel good. It doesn't always make those painful, difficult things go away. But it is an answer that is bigger than our brains and it is bigger than what we can always understand. But it is the answer. Let's stand up. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you as your people. We come as humble sons and daughters. For so many of us in here, so many stories of brokenness and pain and difficulty. Maybe there's many people in here tonight that are asking the question, why? God, why haven't you intervened and stopped this? Or God, why haven't you fixed this yet? And yet I pray that we would be able to see in the life of Job someone who, no matter what the answer, or if we don't even get the answer that we're satisfied with, our process, our questions, our everything centered around you. May we be men and women who worship the beginning, at the end, in the middle of it all. 
May we keep the conversation going with you, bringing and pulling, putting ourselves out there completely and thoroughly before you, honestly before you. And ultimately, we thank you for your son, Jesus, that in our suffering, we can identify with your suffering servant, Jesus, your suffering son. For us to somehow think that we're immune to suffering and then say that we want to be like and identify with Jesus Maybe actually in our suffering, we can identify with Jesus' suffering and also we get to identify with the suffering of the world around us. Help us, Lord Jesus. Help us to not just ask, why me? To not just ask and expect you only to just fix it. And if you don't, we turn back from you. But instead, God, I pray that we would recognize that we might not be able to grasp the answer, but that you are the answer, that we also would be able to then ask the question, what should be my response? How can I respond? Help us then to respond like Job in worship towards a God who's greater and bigger, to a God who's a God of mystery, to a God who's rescuing, to a God who has done something about the suffering of our world. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, Amen.